0: Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod.
1: Standing by the ticket table, flogging runoff stapled zines, hold as much as I am able, 20 pences in my jeans. Flogging runoff stapled zines, collated on the windowsill, 20 pences in my jeans, cash goes to the printing bill. It's the jamming fanzine podcast.
0: I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? And looking at the way it'd been put together and the punk way it'd been put together, quite, quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know? And, and that was, that is a fanzine, right? Episode 4 The Politics of Fanzines. Welcome back to the Jamming Fanzine Podcast. My name is Tony Fletcher, I was editor-publisher of Jamming back in the day, and we initially set up this show as cross-promotion to go with the new book, The Best of Jamming, selections and stories from the fanzine that grew up, 1977-86. The book collects together not just some of the best features from the fanzine slash magazine, but anecdotes from former contributors, from musicians who were interviewed, from people who were on the scene or otherwise just around jamming, along with fresh copy by myself to accompany each issue and a forward by Billy Bragg. It's published by Omnibus Press with a September 23rd, 2021 publication date across the UK and Europe, with the rest of the world following as of December 2nd. And I do want to say that it looks amazing. I don't take credit for the layout of the book. That came from the publishers, and they truly did it justice. Anyway, it's always been on my mind that doing a podcast is perhaps of itself a modern-day version of a fanzine, inasmuch as access is, in theory, open to anyone. You can be as professional or amateur as you like, as long-winded or brief as you like, and as general or as specific as you want. Plus, of course, it's a crowded field. You have to have some kind of merit if you want to get noticed. And most uh, shows, just like most uh, fanzines back in the day, will only last a few episodes slash issues as a result at most. Quite how long this particular show is going to be around is far from certain. I've got several further interviews already in the bag that all relate specifically to jamming. And if the show develops what they call legs, or I guess what I could just call a dedicated listenership, well, hopefully we can carry on having these cultural conversations. On this episode, I get together via Zoom and across three different continents with three former contributors to jamming, Tim Kelly, Janine Booth and Richard Edwards, all of whom also published their own fanzines and got up on stage themselves, either as poets or band members, and were always engaged in the issues of the times as much as they were with the music. And sure enough, we had ourselves a wide-ranging and hopefully engaging conversation in which we talked politics and poetry, fanzines and football, soul music and sexism, animal rights and anarchy, rock, racism, reggae and homophobia, which sounds much like the average contents of an early 80s issue of jamming and is also true to the point of doing this podcast, that hopefully we can provide an interesting long-distance rearview perspective on the culture of those times. As to the point of the spoken verse you heard up front of this episode, it's the opening stanzas to Lighting Rigged, written and read by one of today's three guests, that's Janine Booth. I asked her to record it for the show after something that came up in our conversation and you'll hear the poem in its entirety around the halfway mark. I'm sure you'll understand why when you get there. And if you heard our last episode, Image as Virus with Jolly McPhee, you will know I recorded the intro in the country of Colombia. And if it sounded but like both that intro and the outro were recorded in a barn, well... Actually, they were. I was on a retreat of a kind at a centre for the arts located on what's still currently a functioning cattle farm and had to make do with the best surroundings on hand. I previously hosted a podcast called One Step Beyond, not musical at all, um, which aimed for high production values and I still would like everything to be as audible as possible. But given that we are talking about fanzine culture, I don't mind quite so much if the audio equivalent of the odd glue or tip X mark is noticeable on this particular zoom call one of us did have some wi-fi problems but any audio glitches are brief i can assure you especially as we edit the conversation for length and clarity i think or i certainly hope that everything else here is going to be self-explanatory and in the meantime i trust you will get something of value from this because i know i certainly did episode four of the jamming podcast, The Politics of fantasies. Do
1: you want to buy a copy of Jamming? Tim
0: Kelly, Richard Edwards, Janine Booth. Uh, so much fun to have you on here. And the theme that we're going to have on this today is that every one of us ran a a fanzine back in the day. Every one of us was involved in varying degrees in the politics of the time. But I'm especially interested in how all of us stayed engaged later in life, what we did with our careers and our spare time and how that kind of fanzine DIY culture influenced the rest of our lives. So um, so to, to jump in and do the intro somewhat chronologically in terms of uh, kind of contributions to the Best of Jamming Book, which all of you actually wrote something for, which I'm really, really grateful for. You wrote, you wrote lovely words. It was so fun finding people again. And thank you all for your contributions to, to the book, which I think came out beautiful. The person I've known the longest here and who wrote the first thing for, the, uh, for, for Jamming, I wrote for Jamming the earliest and uh, pretty much the one piece is Tim. So, Tim, you want to give us a brief introduction? You can tell us where you are as well, because I'm in New York State. It's 8 a.m. in the morning. Where are you and what time is it with you?
2: and i'm in sydney australia at 10 o'clock in the evening with a glass of wine <laughs> and the coffee <laughs> there we go <laughs> lucky it's not the other way around <laughs> Essentially, at that time, so I helped out uh, my girlfriend at the time with a fanzine called Revolutionary Suicide, and then um, we did a different fanzine called Fanzine of Noise. Um, The former actually interviewed the Apocalypse, your band Tony, I was just actually reading that, it was quite amusing, Uh, you and Jeff arguing in the interview. Nothing new. (laughs) Nothing new at all, um, and uh, you know, from that, I got really heavily involved with uh, the Anarcho Punk scene, and I roaded for a band called Dirt, and I started playing for a band called Flux of Pink Indians, and eventually we end up uh, forming a, a record label called One Little Indian, which still exists, and um, you know, basically, it got me into my next few decades of uh, of living, which was in the music biz.
3: Fantastic. So uh, what about you, Richard? What was your story? Back in the day uh, when I was contributing to jamming and, and uh, producing um, my own fanzine, call cool Notes, and contributing to uh, uh, my friends out on the floor fanzine, I was coming through uh, changing my career from 11 years as a chef. Then I went through about three and a half years as a residential social worker, and that concluded with a 26-year career with a probation service. Musically, I reverted back to my soul boy roots, really. Politically, uh, I've had some involvement in single-issue campaigns. Anti-apartheid was one, and as you know, Red Wedge. And I've done some voluntary work. I retired a couple of years ago, and um, I contribute to um, some small short articles on soul music as well wonderful wonderful
0: um, so at I, the time I, of
1: jamming i was actually uh, i was a school student in peterborough which is a fairly dull city about 100 miles north of london um i produced a fanzine called blaze we did five issues of that cover of our first one having interviewed i think i had tony and jeff arguing in my interview as well <laughs> I, again because <laughs> right, they support the jam and the jam were like god's But I went off to university in Manchester in the 80s, stopped doing the fanzine. Although I started doing ranting poetry as well, by the end of the 80s, I'd stopped doing that too. Then already involved in CND and stuff like that. When I went to university, I got even more involved in that kind of thing. I ended up being an elected National Women's Officer of the National Union of Students. And then I went back to university to a different one. And kind of activisted around a bit. And eventually in 1997, for 25 years, um, I've worked on stations on London Underground. But I, I do that part time as well, like writing books. And after a 25 year break, I took up writing and performing poetry again. So I'm doing that now.
0: Uh, Janine I I love that you've come uh, come back around to poetry to ranting to put in on nights I think there is a kind of cycle in life and I have spent a considerable time in my life not ever 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 been remotely anything but proud of jamming but but sort of wanting to have another life as well and it was part of what was great Mm -hmm. for me about coming to New York people didn't really know me for it and and I, I got to be something else I actually got to be a club DJ and people had most 99% of people had no idea I'd done this fanzine. So Tim, you know, just maybe being first up with doing the, the, the fanzine, I just want to, you know, I want to get opinions from all of us and everybody feel free to jump in on all of this, but um, you know, what, what, what's the importance, let's talk about the importance of, of, of the fanzines you know revolutionary suicide i've got fond memories of cool notes i've got fond memories of blaze all of them to the best of my memory both good but also classic fanzines in terms of the you know they felt like fanzines so let's talk a bit about the fanzine culture why it was so important to do this and what what role it played at the time And the only reason to start with Tim is he probably did his zine earlier, but uh, I'm not entirely sure. uh, Revolutionary suicide was what? It would have been 80 is the issue that I'm holding. So that's approximately when it was.
2: Yeah, pretty much 1980 sounds about right. The danger is you get nostalgic and you sound like, you know, that old man. I don't want to be that old man really, but it was so exciting. And there was all this new music and there was this energy and there was this feeling that you could you know, what was an industrial age that you could actually do stuff for yourself, you know, and you could get together with someone you could write some stuff. And photocopying was expensive, you know, and you, you would, you, you know, you'd you'd hawk around and find someone who had a photocopier that you could maybe, you know, catch. My mother was running a charity at the time and we actually used their photocopier, which nowadays you'd get shot for because it would be not being used for the purpose of the charity. I do think there was a distinction with your fanzine, Tony, because you obviously had bigger you had your eyes on the prize. You had bigger sights and what you you could be doing. But I think from my perspective, it was like, we just did this stuff and then we sold it and you felt part of this community. But there were hurdles that you had to cross. You couldn't just, you know, hit the internet button and publish stuff. You Mm. had to find photocopiers and you had to print them and and it cost a bit of money. And then you had to go and actually physically sell them. So there's some barriers to entry which actually made it quite rewarding when you pass through them. To that
0: extent, did you sell Revolutionary Suicide and fanzine of Noise in shops or primarily at gigs?
2: Primarily at gigs and, uh, you know, handfuls to Rough Trade, and they would send them wherever they send them. And a couple of other shops like small, you know, you'd get your carrier bag hot on the tube and go up to Small Wonder and Rough Trade and, you know, all the obvious places really. Um, so a handful of shops and the rest were at gigs and stuff.
0: Janine and Richard, uh, maybe refresh us what years you started your fanzine. Similar similar story? 82, um,
3: 81, 82. I came late to the sort of new wave punk thing as as, as I was a sort of Essex solely living in London. And uh, when I caught onto that energy uh, that, that was spoken about, and um, I, I was fascinated by it. And uh, I had harbored aspirations to to be a writer of some sorts, but mainly it was the energy and and coming across a a fanzine called Ability Stinks, uh, which was from Bromley, not far maybe from where you were, Tony, at the time. Um, I don't think it ran for very long. And uh, I thought I'd get a go at this and corralled my friend Kevin into it. Uh, We were fortunate to access InterAction. His community centre was in Kentish Down. A few fanzines were running uh, or printing there, and I just remember the buzz of excitement seeing that roll off the Ronio Um and then of course you know uh, Tim mentioned about the collating of it, which was hard work in itself, stapling and selling it. But uh, that's uh, that's how I um, I got into it, and I think we peaked at about two thousand copies on uh, issue seven of call cool notes. Hard work selling it, really, you know, and and one of the Frustrations was uh, because of our music tastes, um, uh, the belief that I could persuade um, the the, uh, people attending the Subhumans gigs and attending the 100 Club All-Nighters that they'd want to buy it and it would be interesting for them. And, um, you know, but there you have it. You can only do your best.
0: Very easy to be in a niche running a fanzine or anything, much harder to try and appeal across the genres. And I guess that's what you were trying to do. And to an extent, a lot, very large extent, that's what I was trying to do. Janine, give us your story with the fanzine.
1: Yeah, um, I think for me it was about, I think we need to remind our younger listeners at point there was no such thing as the internet, let alone social media. Um, so uh, we couldn't just set up a blog or go on social medias and rant about what we wanted to rant about. So this is what we did. This was um, young people who had something to say and had no platform to say it. Um, and uh, Thatcher's Tory government, which was wrecking everyone's future, everyone's community, and didn't give a shit. So we had a lot of that and nowhere to do it. So we partly that's why people got on stage and did ranting poetry or set up bands, and partly it's why people... And why you get such an eclectic mix of stuff in fanzines as well. So... You know, you get sport and you get politics, as music, poetry, and weird stuff. The other thing I remember about Richard selling his fanzine is Richard started running fanzine festival stuff, and anyone could bring a bundle of their fanzine and put them on. Right. And that was a really good way of bringing. That was. It was a really good way of bringing people together. You know, Act to of solidarity, wasn't it? As well as so instead of twenty fanzine editors having to wander around a, a festival touting their way. It could all go on the then we'd all go and get pissed while Richard stayed on the storm and flogged our fanzines
3: for us. Don't imagine we didn't get pissed. <laughs> we had great fun with those. And, uh, and maybe, I don't know if you all remember, you know, if you didn't live in London, even that the GLC put any amount of festivals on um, in, in, in London parks, Brockwell Park and Victoria Park. And, and And it just sort of made sense to me to think, well, if we take the legwork out of selling ours why not ask people if um, they want to leave theirs and they did it in advance it, back in those days we we considered viz fans viz comic as a fanzine uh, and we got some off viz we took a cut from what we sold and there was times we were taking in about 100 120 pounds um on a day off that stall which was you know um quite good fun and, uh, and helped, helped uh, with, with the sales. And uh, we got a big banner done. If you want to be better informed, read a fanzine. And um, yeah, great memories.
0: So, Tim, you only wrote the one piece for jamming, but it was an important piece. It was in issue 14, which I think is actually, to be honest, kind of peak jamming when it was uh, somewhere between a fanzine and a magazine. And it was about the tour that you did uh, as a as pile of dirt uh, with Crass in Northern Ireland in 1982. Interestingly, I was putting out records by the band Rudy at the time, but they were part of the the scene in Belfast uh, and Northern Ireland that was trying to create their own scene away from what are euphemistically called The Troubles. You kind of drove right into them as a bunch of anarcho-punks. So um, you wrote a, a piece for us, I think really stood the test of the time very well. Just just go back a little point to those days. Janine mentioned about the Thatcher era. Very easy for us to romanticise the eighties. There's not too much to romanticise about them. Talk about what you experienced there.
2: Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, it was pretty amazing. I mean, the early eight. I mean, Britain was. You know, it was a. It was a bit of a wasteland in the early eighties. I mean, just London itself. You know, you could. There was so many empty buildings and squatting culture and um, you know all that kind of stuff happening. But the the troubles were at their height in Northern Ireland, um, and we were a bunch of anarcho punks. I was roading for this band called Dirt, and they were supporting Crass, who were the, the biggest um, anarcho punk band um, of the time. And you know, and so a bunch of anarcho punks go to Belfast. I mean, it's like there's it such a daft idea looking back on it, but you didn't kind of think about it at the time. And we made some great rookie errors. We arrived in Belfast in British cars. Um, which got nicked the first night we were there and joyrided Joe and all the rest of it because we had British plates. Um, there was some real culture shocks, you know. The the gigs we had on had to be in the afternoon because no buses would go at night because they just used to get kidnapped and uh, kidnapped bus-napped and um, and often torched, you know. And it, it was really weird because our hosts were so gracious and our hosts happened to be Catholics. That was. Just the way it was, but the weirdest moment was I remember we there. They were very gracious, and the first night we were there, we got taken to this bar. And um, at seven o'clock, they someone came out and put this padlock on the bar doors. And I said, "What's going on?" And I said, "Well, we're, so it's a lock-in. You know, no one can leave the bar, and everyone. So if anyone leaves a bomb, they're going up with it. So we're in this bar, and all there is is beer and peanuts." And so, you know, several pints of beer later, 11 o'clock, it's closing time. And they open these pub doors and everyone steams out and everyone's fully cut. And over the road is the Protestant pub where exactly the same thing has happened. And it just went off in the middle of the road, you know, and we're like, oh, my God, I'm trying to get out. And you guys will know, but maybe the listeners won't. But at that time in, in Belfast, The city centre was cordoned off and you had to go through turnstiles to enter the city centre as part of the security checks. Um, You know, so you're kind of ducking up this side alley to avoid this big fight that's going off in the middle of the road between these pubs, and all you can see is silhouettes of figures holding big sticks, what looked like, and you get closer, and it's the army um, to get out of the city centre to go back where we were coming from. So it was a totally surreal experience. Playing in that environment, the gigs themselves were um, uh, were great, and the crowd was really enthusiastic. But you know, halfway through, they got broken up by the RUC, who um, you know weren't the gentlest of folks. The the RUC at those those days in Belfast, and uh, so it was pretty hairy. But it was a great experience. We met amazing people amongst all that. We met truly amazing people. So it was a it was a highlight of my young gigging life.
0: I bet it was, and. That scene that you were part of, um, I I went out to the Crass HQ and did an interview after getting in a pen pal exchange with Penny Rimbaud, as a lot of people did, after writing a piece about tribalism at the time and the violence. And uh, Penny wrote to me to defend Crass. And that culture that you were part of, the fact is that uh, the members of the bands were inherently... To, well, a lot of them, crass, were pacifist, but the, but the music and the message attracted a degree of, of violence to it. And again, you know, we can romanticize the fact that we were around in some pretty heady days, but something that's come up in a lot of my discussions I'm having is the violence that was attendant to that, right?
2: Yeah, and they were, you know, and we were very DIY. So we put on all our own gigs, we hired our own halls, we were totally outside the system, and we did our own security. You know, times, I think, it depends where you are, of course, but generally in this kind of world, times where, you know, there was more violence at football matches, there was more violence at gigs, things were much more likely to go off back then than I think now. And, you know, we would particularly attract the skinheads. In certain towns, Birmingham, I always remember the Birmingham skinheads really had it in for us, and, you know, every gig, w- and we would be doing our own security. It was terrifying, you know, I was a skinny little run to the lad and uh, confronting these big skinheads. It was terrifying. Birmingham actually ended up with our drummer getting um, smashed in the head with uh, a fire extinguisher, um, but we still did the gig without the drummer, you know, bonkers, really.
0: Show must <laughs> really go lost on, her. right? Rock and roll, <laughs> eh? Right? Was that as part of Dirt or Flux later? Oh,
2: sorry, that was part of Flux, yeah. That's, yeah. That was moving yeah, on. It, it is that. So so, same so, scene.
0: Yeah, absolutely the same scene, and Flux were pretty much, in, um, to my mind, the second biggest, you know, to, the band after Crass in terms of sort of popularity and influence at a certain point. So, Janine, growing up in Peterborough, did you experience yeah. that? You Did what tell, tell
1: what, Well, no, no, growing up in Peterborough, yeah. Did I experience that? No, not much went on in Peterborough. Um, it's where I live now is like a tenth of the size of Peterborough, still manages to have more going on. Um, <laughs> okay. so no, I, I, I had to go on coach trips to experience the real grief at gigs. Um, we didn't, we didn't have many gigs in Peterborough at all. One, those that we did, I'd put in a fanzine, but uh, yeah, we'd. We'd jump on a train or a coach and go to gigs, flog the fanzine in other places, etc. Leicester, Nottingham, Ipswich, all places that were more interesting than Peterborough. And had right. prop and, and had venues and were and bands stopped off there on their tours.
0: Right. And you know, that that speaks to the kind of drive we all must have had when we were younger, because it's hard enough being out of fanzine. I think We would just get on trains and do stuff. You know, if you it it was like whether it was the Times, you know, the Thatcher Times, it's worth noting that punk happened initially under a Labour government. You know, Mm -hmm. you wanted to create your own scene. You had to get on a bus, you had to get on a train Mm -hmm. or you had to walk several miles at night and you would do it because you wanted to be part of something. And there was Mm -hmm. only three channels on at home. Uh, Richard, you said you were like an Essex um, soul boy. I've always loved that you had that soul thing running through your life. So,
3: <laughs> so um... the travelling um, for start uh, there was, was a hitching. I didn't hitch uh, very often, but uh, I remember going to uh, festivals. My only one time going to Glastonbury in 1983. £13 a ticket. Um, and you had uh as what the fun boy three, Curtis Mayfield, one of the reasons I'd gone. Um, but yeah, hitching down down there and to up to other festivals. Uh occasionally we were traveling to Peterborough for Northern Soul um events. So, so there was not much going on, but uh, but that that was.
1: Can, can, can I add at this, while we're, while we're kind of um, happily remembering and glamorising the travelling around kind of thing, which is fine, and I particularly want to detract from that, but I do want to mention that it wasn't always safe for women in particular, for young women in particular. Mm. I'm not going to go into details here, but I've, there's a poem on my website, if you want to look at it, about when I was sexually assaulted selling fanzines at a gig in Cambridge. Lighting rigged. Standing by the ticket table, flogging run-off stapled zines, hold as much as I am able, twenty pences in my jeans. Flogging run-off stapled zines, collated on the window sill, twenty pences in my jeans. Cash goes to the printing bill, collated on the window sill, written with a young fan's passion. Cash goes to the printing bill and booze and fags and anti-fashion. Written with a young fan's passion, sold to same at sweat-soaked gigs, booze and fags and anti-fashion mixing desks and lighting rigs. Sold to same at sweat-soaked gigs, powered by punked-up singers, players, mixing desks and lighting rigs, lapped up by the ticket payers. Powered by punked-up singers, players, I'm chatting with the table guy, lapped up by the ticket payers, tap what money cannot buy. I'm chatting with the table guy of favourite bands, guitars and bass. Tap what money cannot buy, he says he'll take me round the place. Favourite bands, guitars and bass at 17, it's all my rage. He says he'll take me round the place to show me all the rigs backstage. At 17 it's all my rage, this techie guy has volunteered to show me all the rigs backstage, I'll learn my stuff about the gear, the techie guy has volunteered to show me things I've never seen, I'll learn my stuff about the gear, perhaps I'll write it in the zine, he'll show me things I've never seen, expand my learning and my fervour, perhaps I'll write it in the zine, spread the news and knowledge further, expand my learning and my fervour, that's what teenage me expects. To spread the news and knowledge further, nothing else do I suspect. That's what teenage me expects, as the backstage door falls shut, nothing else do I suspect of this friendly fellow, but... As the backstage door falls shut, I smell the breath and feel the hands of this friendly fellow, but this closeness was not what I'd planned. I smell the breath and feel the hands, he rams his lips full on to mine, this closeness was not what I'd planned, he slavers pants, he's crossed the line, he rams his lips full on to mine, his pin-down grip abrasive chin, he slavers pants, he's crossed the line and leaves his paw print on my skin, his pin-down grip abrasive chin, I pull right back and push away, he leaves his paw print on my skin, I hear him laugh at me and say... I pull right back and push away. I must have missed the nudges, winks. I hear him laugh at me and say, I surely didn't really think. I must have missed the nudges, winks. Ignored the signs in his inviting. I surely didn't really think we'd come in here to see the lighting. Ignored the signs in his inviting. What a fool that I believed we'd come in here to see the lighting. How could I be so naive? What a fool that I believed a person meant the words they'd used. It's my fault I was so naive. I must have got my wires confused. A person meant the word they used. Another meaning overrode. I must have got my wires confused. i meant to know the words are code. Another meaning overrode. I feel like such a bloody fool. i meant to know the words are code. I wipe my mouth and keep my cool. I still feel like a bloody fool. I try to put it from my mind. I wipe my mouth and keep my cool. And leave my self-esteem behind. I try to put it from my mind and hold as much as I am able. I leave my self-esteem behind standing at that ticket table. The whole thing was a very, very male scene. And I have to say it's one of the things that's different between ranting poetry then and spoken word poetry now. Is spoken word poetry spoken word poetry now uh, scene now is incredibly diverse. And it's incredibly diverse in that really good way in which it's not put up a big banner saying, hey, look at us, aren't we diverse? It's just kind of naturally diverse. You go to an open-mic spoken word gig and you'll see men and women, people of colour, you'll see black people, Asian people, and and you'll also see, and this is surprising for any kind of cultural event, huge variety of ages. So yeah. we launched the new spoken word night in Lewis uh, at the beginning of this month. And, you know, we we had two oldies doing the actual scheduled poetry, me and Attila, the stockbroker. And we had some open mics and some young people had come up to, to from Brighton for it. And there was just there was just a real mix of people. And goodness me, I wish it had been like that in the 1980s. I think I put a brave face on being one of the few women involved. It was actually quite good for getting gigs because some people were conscious enough that they thought they should have at least one wimp, woman on their gig, gig line-up. And I became that go-to woman at times. Yeah. Um, but other than that, it was quite, you know... Did we have
3: Jules the Poet, Janine? Yeah, we had Jules, Jules yeah. The poet. And
1: there was a few others as well. An- anxiety, I think. And yeah.
3: Anxiety. I think. And a few more, yeah. Benjamin and- Zephaniah came in um, later on that. Uh, you know, yeah. I-, I interviewed ben- Benjamin, who was living in, in-, in our area in Stratford, uh, and he paced around my room huge character and uh and brought some yeah but i, I i'd agree with uh, the point you're making here that it was a limited diversity in both fanzines and you know often in the music industry as well
0: yeah and that's again this is something i'm really happy to talk about because reading back through jamming i i kind of relived i relived some of that you know there was a vicious cycle going on we had a bit of a boys mentality at the fanzine because that's who was doing fanzines, and that 's who was writing to us saying they wanted to write to us and I always wanted to have a broader contributor base, but you tended to just get you know it was this awful self fulfilling prophecy a lot of the time, and I was always genuinely glad when we were approached by by women, females, girls, whatever you want to say, who are like, "Hey, I want a chance at writing because I was very, very conscious of that, and yet. For a long time, I would genuinely say only one in ten people who said, "Can I write for jamming?" was female, and unfortunately, mm. probably you know, point five in ten was even non-white of any description. It was mm-hmm, it mm. was hard to break that barrier, even if you wanted to. So, Janine, I'm I'm you know, I'm hats off to anybody anybody who started a fanzine, any girl who started a fanzine, any person of colour. Really, I sorry. did loads of
1: things that girls weren't supposed to do, and yeah. very few things that girls were supposed to do. And like, still I, do, I, I suspect. Jenny, I, went, yeah. I still do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I went. I went to the football on my own. Like again, a reminder to our younger listeners. Right, women's football was not a thing then. In fact, the, the Football Association only legalized women playing football in 1971, having banned it in 1921 because people didn't stop going to women's football and start going to men's football again after the First World War. So, mm-hmm. in the 1970s, girls playing football was like woo. It was, I mean, it hadn't just been allowed, but it was not the thing at all. The idea of a professional women's football league was way off, way, way off. Quite a bit of my story is about feeling the odd one out and feeling different. I've always felt really different from everyone around me. And in 2012, 2012, at the age of 45, I finally found out why um, when I found out that I'm autistic and my life suddenly made sense. It's brilliant. And and two years later, I took up poetry again, and I'm pretty sure those two things are linked. I think Cause I it's... felt the diagnosis let me feel free to be myself and be as wacky and ridiculous and whatever as I felt like being.
0: You've written that. I'm going to go off on various tangents. You've written a, a beautiful poem about being a Borough fan, and I was like Borough? what Middlesbrough? Mm. It was it's Peterborough, of course. Posters, I of think some people do. call them. Do,
1: do you know what my um the new place, I, the place I live in now, will not forgive me unless I share this particular fact. Lewis Football Club is the first and only football club in the whole world that pays its men and women players exactly the same amount. Yeah, wow. not, um, credit so, to them. I'm not sure. It might be a little bit unfair because the women's team are better than the men, but you know, but we'll put up with, with it for now, I think.
0: Tony here. I hope you don't mind me interjecting briefly. I want to confirm that Lewis is the first team in the UK, indeed, to provide equal pay for its uh, female and male football players not necessarily the first in the world, but certainly not uh, the only team in the world. There are now others. I think Lewis has done a lot to help uh, pave the way for this necessary equal pay. There are some national teams. It may not be a surprise that New Zealand offers equal pay to its female and male players. And one reason that uh, we did get on that discussion is because actually for my other podcast, currently on hiatus while I do this one, it's called One Step Beyond. And back in May, I did a two-parter with Erin Blankenship, co-founder of Equal Playing Field. Erin is an American-born athlete who has traveled a lot with her work, and she played professional football, i.e. soccer, for West Ham and Crystal Palace in England and in some other countries as well. She was appalled by some of the inequalities she experienced. Uh, Equal Playing Field has proven some points that hopefully In an ideal world would not have been necessary to have proven, but they hold the Guinness World Records for the highest altitude game of football ever played on top of Mount Kilimanjaro, which I can assure you from having been there has very, very little air. They did a 90 minute game, 22 players with referees. Then they went and did the same thing, hiking down to the bottom of the Dead Sea uh, for the lowest altitude game of football ever. We did also talk about how Jamming had a football team played in a a sort of music related league at the time. And as was the way back then, it was an all-male league, an all-male team. And I'm really glad that those things have changed. And Janine reminded us that when Jamming played a ranting poets team in a so-called friendly, she was part of that team. So hats off to her for that. I do recall that being one of the few games that the Jamming team won convincingly. My memory is that the ranting poets made what Tim would call a rookie error of hitting the pub before the match rather than after the match. But we digress. Back to the show. The, you know, the aspect of having people come to jamming and say, I want to write about something different. You know, when, I, when, I, when I look back at this... You know, there's a point at which I'm aware that we're we it's all sort of white male rock bands, but there was always the there was always the desire to write about more. I mean, you can see from issue three where I go to the famous carnival against the Nazis, and I've always been very very strong and passionate about that. And seeing Steel Pulse, and you know, I mean, I was thrilled to see Steel Pulse. And then as well, I played the next carnival, which was close to the home in Brockwell Park. I was thrilled again when Rich, Richard came to us to say, "Can I go off and interview these groups?" and and I gave him the full full go ahead. And Richard, you had a bit of reality check, didn't you, when you then interviewed Steel Pulse?
3: Yeah, it was as I mentioned in, um, uh, you know, you were good enough to give me space in the book, um, Tony, and 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 I appreciate that. I, I think I contributed um, other things on, say, like the Redskins and so on, but I, I did have a passion for reggae. Our fans in Cool Notes was named after, um, there were more lovers rock. Um, I don't know if people re- recall lovers rock in those days, but absolutely big fans of uh, of Steel Pulse and uh, and we fixed up uh, an interview with them and uh, I became aware of, uh, I think it was David Hines, uh, the singer, had made statements that fundamentally anti league and uh, and i brought it up with him um i mentioned um in in the book um I, maybe i was somewhat naive in thinking that we could have a healthy sort of debate about this and uh, and his uh, his immediate response was um why are you one and <laughs> and uh, sort of threw me off uh, off guard a bit but it was a wake-up call that you know um Diversity can, you know, mean a whole lot of things, really. It, it doesn't always necessarily uh, come with justice and equality. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It should do. It should do. But on that uh, occasion, clearly it, uh, it didn't. And, uh, but we, uh, we put it in jamming and it was there, as, um, you know, to be honest about th- th- these issues um, were there.
0: I think you followed that up with Aswad and maybe had a better time of it with with Aswad. Is that correct? They got you very Yeah, strongly. absolutely.
3: I did. Yeah. I think I came back telling you that there um, <laughs> huge amounts of cannabis being consumed in, uh, not by me, I've said, and uh, said, we can't do anything with it. And and uh, Tony said to me, look, I I trust you, Richard, go away and, and, you know, make some sense of it. And, and we did. Uh, and I think that might not come as a huge surprise, but uh the, the the cannabis issue but um yeah i, I was pleased to see you accommodate um re, you know reggae uh, in uh in jamming um as uh we we did i think uh, we had david rodigan we interviewed and um in uh, out on the floor i think it was uh but reggae bands weren't easy to get hold of for fanzine writers
0: yeah uh jamming actually as as it moved on it it, it did get as diverse as i wanted it to be and that was um Probably just listening to the contributors, just being glad that people would come with the kind of ideas for things that I would like to do if I still had the time. And Janine, I recall you—you know—you're uh, you, approaching uh, Jamie. I'm not going to recall the the—you the, know—individual letters or, or I was going to say emails. Ha <laughs> ha! Pre-email, <laughs> kiddos. Um, the letter or phone call that might have started it off, but certainly I was really happy to greenlight um, your piece on. Um, Going out with the hunt saboteurs, a fox hunt.
1: Saboteurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, here, here's, our, here's how life comes around. When I was, I wrote that when I was about 17 or something. My youngest son is 17 and he's training to be a gamekeeper. So, <laughs> okay. <sighs> okay. Um, um, we all rebel against our parents, don't we? <laughs> that's, yeah, you should that's have tried I'm...
3: harder, Janine. Didn't
1: yeah. <laughs> Well,
0: I was glad to have that piece, and um, I, re- I reread it when we put, we put both that and the Aswell piece uh, reprinted almost full size in the, in the book, um, or the, the, the fox hunting piece, maybe not. It was a good piece. I remember mm. it being a good piece, and it was the kind of thing I wanted to have in, in jamming. Um, that issue would have been just as I came back from a holiday and decided to turn vegetarian, So I was probably going through some of that internally. and very happy for you to do the piece. I'm not sure if Mm, I had mm -hmm. had that holiday in terms of vegetarian at the time that you wrote it. I might not have done. Were you were you activists like
1: that all the time, Janine? Were you? No, no, no. I, I went out on it specifically for that. So I was, you know, I was in support of it and I've always been into animal welfare and stuff like that. But it's not been a thing I've been particularly activist about. I was much, much more doing solidarity with the miners' strike and in CND. and I was involved in the Labour Party Young Socialists at the time as well.
0: The uh, CND aspect, I think you would have written about for us uh, just a little down the line. Um, this, I think I did, I, yeah. Uh, you actually didn't write too much for us, Janine, but you did a good piece when we did a, a, a kind of a special about various CND issues that were going mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. At, the, at, the, uh, at the time. Um, Tiny Tiny Fenimore uh, wrote some of the other articles around that, and she yeah. and I have managed to, to stay friends. You know, keeping one eye on the time, we have to face up to the fact that um, here we are, all being very valiant in the 80s, doing fighting the good fight. It was an uphill battle, as, um, as evidenced by the fact that you know, after jamming folded, you know, Thatcher got elected a third time in, in, in 87. Uh, Richard, you and I were involved somewhat in Red Wedge, which started up at the very end of jamming, so like in late '85, and was really meant to ensure a Labour victory in '87, and, and and nothing of the sort happened.
3: Yeah, singularly one of the most heartbreaking, you know, occasions. I, I for whatever his faults, I was that was when we had Kinnock um, was Labour leader, am I right? And uh, it, it just was absolutely heartbreaking, um, and uh, I remember we'd put in a quite a, a lot of work in in um, red wedge and uh, well red magazine um which included quite a number of people from uh, from fanzines and uh you know um yeah but I, I, I think it's about sometimes people go away and we pick ourselves up uh and and we do you know what we can whether in our locality if if we you know we've got five years ahead of us of this awful, awful government. Um and and uh part of me is is it was had similar feelings with um without jumping their gun here with Trump and uh and Brexit. Uh when these decisions come along and it's outside of our control then we have to I think look at other means and ways um, whether that's single issue politics um, you know, I, I, um, I'm a member of the Labour Party, but I'm also involved in voluntary work and involved in the church now. And I, I look to those opportunities to make a difference locally in between national, um, national mm.
1: elections. Richard, do I remember rightly after mm. the 1987 general election, you wrote a piece somewhere? Well, it might have been the 83 general election analogizing labour with laboratory mm. rats trying to escape. Yes, yeah, I did. Escape. Yeah, I did. Um, the,
3: well, it was well a laboratory
1: remembered. where was, there was the lab rats and the Tory rats.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Uh, it was about the rats... Uh, I can't remember uh, were, what I was were, doing yesterday, mind you, but I can remember that. Yeah, the lead rat <laughs> was trying to convince um, the other rats that this is an opportunity to escape and, and make a difference to, you know, go out and, and create a new life for ourselves. And, uh, and sadly, the, the rats decided that they want to stay where they were. And <laughs> I've been reading loads of Orwell um, around those days, as I yeah. suspect maybe a few, I don't know, a few of us as as I certainly was and still passionate about his work. And, uh, and that, was, uh, that was it. Yeah, well was remembered. That,
0: was that the 87 election then?
3: Uh, it was, you? yeah. yeah. Right. Um, I, actually,
0: I actually read Burmese Days only a, f- a couple of months back. I've had it all my life. Like, literally it made the journey from from Britain to America with me and I uh, was like why have I never read this and I devoured it it's uh, and having not uh, spent time in India and that that part of the world but not in in uh, what's what's now Myanmar you know, it was fascinating so yeah the Orwell thing I think uh, it does it, it does well to stay with us you know I'm going to make a good connection here because talking about or- Orwell and you mentioned the Trump thing there's a whole bunch of c- connections uh I that eighty seven election was so profoundly disappointing to me. I hadn't expected that result. It played a large part in me ending up in America. I I I know America. You know Reagan was president here, and it is like, well, why jump out of the frying pan into the fire? But I I felt a greater sense of freedom in New York than I did in London at the time. But the uh, you know fast forwarding. Uh, I was down under when Trump was elected, and that also was you know that was a way bigger shock. Um, I was actually in Auckland, New Zealand, but only two or three days later was back in Sydney and um, seeing Tim, where where Tim lives. It was awful to come home to that. It was a terrible, anxiety ridden, violence ridden. Oh, the the four years was just like a living nightmare. Every morning you'd get up wondering what fire this guy had started that he would then claim to put out after bringing us all to the brink. Honestly, honestly, the thatchy years in some ways looked like a, 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 you know, pleasant compared to some of what we went through. But I do think that life—it's not that you know we get what we necessarily deserve. Um, it's not that things necessarily happen for a reason. But I do think it's really important that we learn from everything that happens for us, and we we take every crisis and create a, an opportunity out of it. And I think that's something that we—it sounds like we all did with our lives that. You know, when kind of when we got knocked down, you know, to quote a very well-known commercial song from the anarcho-punk era, we get up again and we do something, you know. And, mm-hmm. and what's really striking me, and I want to let you all talk now, is that what we went through in those days, this DIY ethic, this, the, the political period that we were part of, in, definitely stayed with us, all of us, and inspired us for the rest of our lives, right? I'd love to just mm-hmm. really talk about
1: that. Yeah, so, uh, absolutely. So one, one of the things I'm quite a strong support of, I'm, I'm a very active trade unionist. I've been very active in the RMT trade union. Um, in, in 2011, um, I was elected to its national executive. I actually became the first ever woman to serve a full-time a full term on the National Executive of the RMT, but I'm very, very interested in not just what goes on at the top of unions, but rank-and-file organising, and, file organizing. and um, I, I have, I've built quite a collection now of rank-and-file workplace bulletins, so leaflets, regular leaflets, bulletins produced by rank-and-file workers in particular industries. It was something the Communist Party started a hundred years ago before it went all Stalinised and horrible, and uh, uh, a handful of small groups of people carry on to this day. And um I was just chatting with Matthew Worley or something a while ago, um, just thinking, hang on, that's kind of, that's kind of the fanzine ethic in the workplace, isn't it? That's the fanzine ethic applied to, to trade union activism in the workplace.
2: Yeah.
0: Does that DIY culture stay with you, Tim?
2: Yeah, very much. Um The, you know, well, I think it's, now, I think politically it, it does get interesting because, you know, I think some of the cultural things that were touched on earlier, you know, when when we were doing these fanzines in the early 80s, I mean, you, you kind of, you've got to put it into context as well. You know, the, you know, homosexuality in Britain had only been legal for, what, 11 years, right? Equal pay for women, pretty much the same in Australia, you know, as the sixty nine seventy that uh, Aboriginal people were recognised as citizens, you know, for Christ's sake. Um, you know, so these things were, were still quite new. They were still quite old. Uh, sorry. So it was still quite fresh. And I think that, you know, I'm certainly not, saying that uh, I played a, a major role in this, but I think the mood, the DIY movement and the attitudes that got brought to the table in all our different ways, and we are coming from different places, the anarcho-punk place or the, what you were doing, Tony, or Richard bringing the kind of the, the soul element into it and, 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 and Janine's poetry, you know, have ended up in a situation now where, homosexuality is accepted where racism isn't accepted in most places and it used to be yeah it used to be very casual back in the day where you know s- the sexual assault is still happens obviously but it's recognized as a bad thing whereas before it was like well oh, that's just you know that's the price you pay for going out love kind of vibe.
1: I would, Tim um, I would qualify that by saying there are some forms of racism which are still um, every day, I'm, and, I'm not saying and tolerated. No. For instance, racism against tra- Roma and traveller people.
2: Totally, yeah. totally agree. But I think and if, refugees
1: and migrants.
2: Uh, and I, I'm hearing you totally, Janine. But the. There's a consciousness about it now, mm-hmm. which I don't think existed yeah. back then. And I think the DIY ethic and the involvement in politics and actually getting out and discovering life for yourself and working these things out um, progresses. And I think, you know, we're we, you know, it's uh, it's really motivating to be part of something that was part of that bigger thing you know, and, and challenging these attitudes and going out and doing it for ourselves um, rather than having people do it for us. Um, and in all our different ways, challenging the status quo in its various uh, its various elements. And, you know, often the right wins the elections, as we saw with the Thatcher years, and now we've got the, the Boris Johnson years, or as we've seen in America with Trump and in Australia, we've got a dreadful, dreadful government, but socially things have progressed. And yeah, that's, that's important. important,
3: Richard, yeah? Yeah, I'd just um, like to, just just thinking about what have I done with, you know, how's the, that DIY ethos, um, you know, influenced me. Uh, And it's dawned on on me in in quite a considerable way. Um, In 26 years um, as a probation officer in London and and, uh, the Midlands and Yorkshire, uh, the bulk of that was working with um, groups of um, of offenders, uh, nearly always men, and nearly always with them having uh, been been guilty of, or found guilty of of, of some form of abusive behaviour. To reach somebody, uh, this was in the lion's den here, um, and and you can imagine the sort of attitudes uh, that that, uh, probation officers might meet in such a room, and to get them to reflect, to press pause, and even have a conversation with you is no easy task. And so what I did, I started getting creative uh, with some of the programs that we had, much to the frustration of my uh, and elders and betters. And um, so I'm just uh, looking here that I think I mentioned in in uh, uh, an email recently where I'd bring in music and say, right, we're going to go around the room and I want you to come in next week with a, an, an idea of a piece of music that touches you, that, that changes your emotions in a positive way. We're going to find it on our phone. We play a bit. And you're going to talk to the rest of the group, you know, and sometimes we got horrendous uh, gangster rap stuff. And i said say the main qualifying one rule, it can't have the word bitch in it, you know, <laughs> but anything else. Uh, and and um, we got a lot of stuff like Bob Marley and whatever, but it was about testing the boundaries. Other times I was using stuff like Gavin and Stacey, little clips. And, um, you know, obviously I was told, oh, there's, there's, there's um, copyright and so on and so forth, but, Using popular culture and testing the boundaries of limitations that were placed by the Home Office in order to get a, a message over and to open up conversations. And I think that was very punk DIY in its own way
0: yeah i'm really it, it, i'm gonna wrap this up but it's it's uh it's so lovely to be reunited with you janine and and richard i think richard you and i have sort of known where to find each other over the years but uh, janine you were you were hiding in plain sight with a very active I was. website yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i just needed the reason to find you you know life this is the fun <laughs> thing about doing this 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 book i it was it would have been very easy to just reprint pages from the magazine that's all that was commissioned yeah. and i i sort of saw an opportunity to make it what i wanted it to be and and uh, the delight was then uh, finding and reuniting with a lot of people and having some conversations and now thinking like there's there's hopefully uh Yeah, hopefully these conversations edited down a bit will be of interest to other to other people. You know, we lived through some interesting times. That we all always live in interesting times. We did something active ourselves, made sure that we weren't just bystanders. And by the sound of it, none of us none of us have remained bystanders. You know, we've all a couple of very Mm -hmm. very quick questions. Am I correct that none of us went to university at the time, at the age of eighteen, or did any of us?
1: No, I didn't. Uh, I was eighteen when when I went to university. I was 19. Okay,
0: but you also went back to school, by the sound of it, and got a, a different degree. I think you said something about going back to university. Yeah, yeah.
1: Right. And, and believe it or not, I'm now at university again. What are you studying, uh, Janine? I'm doing a postgrad certificate in um, autism. Oh, okay. Fantastic. But I'm doing it all by remote learning with Sheffield Hallam Uni, and ho- hoping to start PhD next year.
0: Fantastic. Uh, and Richard, you went to university later in life,
3: right? Uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't come out of school with any um, qualifications to so-called merit and uh, I was a mature student yeah absolutely
2: yeah yeah I left uh, Stanley Tech in uh, South London at uh, 15 with no qualms, and uh, yeah and then I went to Birkbeck Uni in London in in my mid to late 20s and now I've just commenced my PhD Um, my sins yeah it's funny how those things go
0: it's it's really really fascinating i left school at 16 and 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 i do regret to say i couldn't have gone to college at the time there was no way in my world that was going to make sense but the life stays so busy i still haven't done that and um listening to and and doing the emails with the three of you does i've i keep thinking about that and i know There is time. And I also know, uh, as you you pointed out, Richard, I'm going to have to follow up a couple of groups um, where I think people may have passed away. We are at the age where a lot of the bands we wrote about, people don't make it the long haul. And that's Mm -hmm. just a reality as well. So I'm also very aware that life's precious and we're all glad to be here, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I hope you got as much out of that conversation as I did. I found it quite inspiring to be honest with you, to know that Janine, Tim, Richard, and I know they're not alone, are all still out there fighting the good fight, that the various values many of us acquired back in the day, putting out fanzines, being in bands, doing stand-up poetry, have stuck with us throughout our lives. I will provide links in the show notes. That is the further information that you find on your phone app or on your computer webpage, and I will give you ways to access Janine's website to know more about her poetry night and social media for Tim and Richard. More information about the book as well. The book is called The Best of Jamming. Selections and stories from the fanzine that grew up 1977 to 86. It's published by Omnibus Press. Go to omnibuspress.com or go to tonyfletcher.net and you should get more information on how to order it. And I do want to ask If you are using an app on your phone that invites you to leave a rating or review, it would be wonderful if you would do so. I'm not the one who chooses to live in a world set by algorithms. It's been chosen for me. At the same time, I can't complain because it does seem a little less painful than dealing with all the printing costs. And you don't have me walking up to you at the gig and saying, do you want to buy a copy of Jamming? My special thanks to my 16-year-old son, Noel Fletcher, for coming up with the wonderful theme music at very short notice, and an enormous shout-out of gratitude to Greg Morton over at Omnibus Press, who is helping with the editing of this show, and it's wonderful to have that extra pair of ears and online hands. This show does drop every other Thursday. Lots more interviews in the can. I'm not entirely sure which one will come up next, but it will be in your podcast feed, hopefully, if all goes as planned, two weeks from this one. While I remember, a shout out to Richard's former fanzine co-editor, Kevin. I remember you well, and I have a feeling you might be listening along we'll see you in a couple of weeks and in the meantime uh to quote a redskin song and uh the redskins are a group that richard noted he wrote about for jamming he did more than that he once actually literally physically went to battle for them at a famous glc jobs for a change festival that turned violent and on that note keep on keeping on And I'm back just to say that if you thought you heard somebody singing Smells Like Teen Spirit in the background, you're not mistaken. My 16-year-old son has a day off school and he's singing Nirvana in the shower. Being that this is a fanzine podcast, I'm not going to re-record that previous outro. I'm going to leave it right on in there. And Janine, yes, it's true, some of our children rebel against us. But here and there, the apple falls not too far from the tree.